Hello and welcome to Bad Gays, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, historian and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. Last week we talked about a sort of colonialist gangster who somehow has still managed to put himself at the centre of the culture wars. Who are we talking about this week, Ben? Well, Hugh, I want to begin by setting a scene for you. To the sound of a tinned orchestra playing the soaring string theme from the first movement of the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto. You know it. I'm closing my eyes and imagining this, yeah. A man springs fully dressed from a glittering white polyester bed. He strides into an enormous walk-in closet. No closet on reality TV or in a Cirque movie could compare. You need to understand this is an absolutely enormous closet, big enough to live in for a week, a month, even a lifetime, and selects a spangled white jacket to put on over his white coat and trousers, and a flowing white fur cape with a seven-foot train. Regally, this man descends the white stairs of his white mansion, stopping at a white piano to tinkle a few notes while staring directly into the camera, face frozen in a surgically enhanced grin, eyes twinkling almost unnaturally as if a human face had somehow been transformed into a logo. He greets and then waves goodbye to a series of small dogs, stands, and is escorted by a valet into a white Rolls Royce, which then derives directly onto the stage of a theater, underneath a neon emblem of a piano with a candelabra on top. The valet stands and opens the door, and out he steps, cape flowing behind him, microphone already in hand to wild applause. It is 1981 the year that an article hidden deep inside the New York Times warned of rare cancers in 41 homosexuals. Well, he says, look me over. The audience roars. You don't dress like this, he says, not to be noticed. How'd you like my entrance? Whenever he speaks, his face stays fixed in that rictus grin. He gestures at the Rolls Royce behind him, explaining that it was a souvenir from having given a Royal Command performance that he now collects unusual automobiles. They tell me, he lisps, that this is the only Rolls-Royce Phantom 500 in the world with a left-hand drive. So after I got it over here, I had to find me a left-handed chauffeur, right? Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet my friend and chauffeur, Scott Thorson. The crowd cheers, the handsome blonde chauffeur bows and drives the car off stage. The man steps to the front of the stage and invites the audience to feel his coat. Virgin Fox, he says, takes one to no one, Just think of how long it took to collect all those pelts. (laughs) A 1970s ABC News profile, just a few years before, featured the same great entertainer bemoaning his lack of children. I think the regret is probably that I didn't have children, he said. There never was a Mrs. Liberace, except for his late mother, for whom his devotion is well known, intoned the announcer. Because of that, his flamboyant lifestyle and male friends have created rumors about his sexual preference, rumors which infuriate him. In a later biography of this man, the pianist and entertainer Vladiu Valentino Liberace, who would later die of complications related to that rare cancer, AIDS, the historian Darden Asbury Pryron would write that, quote, the anomalies were the very source of his representativeness. How could someone, so to speak frankly, faggy, become an emblem of middle American family entertainment? If the United States of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s 
We're going through enormous social change, the civil rights movement, the summer of love, women's lib, the Stonewall riots, gay liberation, and the beginning of the AIDS movement. Liberace was an entertainer who appealed precisely to those parts of the country, and indeed the fortest middle classes across the Anglophone world, who sought most to resist those changes. The kids wanted Janis Joplin or Jimi Hendrix or disco. Liberace served up Chopin waltzes with cheesy orchestrations, soft pop hits, and light classical music. Hated by classical critics, he was beloved by audiences, I believe, precisely because of the openness of his secret and the way he performed a kind of minstrel act that nevertheless won him fame, riches, and glory. Known as Lee to friends and Walter to his family, Liberace was born in West Allis, a suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on May 16, 1919, to what we might now call ethnic white immigrants. His father, Salvatore, immigrated from Lazio in central Italy, and his mother, Frances Suchowska, who lived until 1980, was Polish. He had an identical twin who died at birth and three siblings, his brother, George, a violinist who often worked as Lee's arranger, a sister, Angelina, and a younger brother, Ruder, Rudy, sorry, uh, named, full name was Rudolf Valentino Liberace, after the actor, because his mother loved show business. And he didn't become Liberace. No. With a name Vlad like that. Vladziu became Liberace. Rudolf Valentino had to wait. Uh, so Lee made his entrance into the world with the kind of entrance drama that would follow him throughout his life. He was the survivor of two male twins, and he appeared with a mysterious membrane called a call veiling his entire head. Uh, which among Catholics at that time was believed to portend an exceptional life, a life of genius. So drama queen from birth. This was an era of American history in which immigrants driving parents saw success in classical music as a way to integrate themselves and their children into the broader American experiment, which was one which promised riches, land, and the resolution of European class conflict to those who could be successfully integrated into whiteness. If poor European immigrants from Southern uh, and Central Europe were often described in the same racist terms as, for example, immigrants from Central and Latin America are today, they were also representatives of a tradition of European cultural heritage, which America could not boast and about which it had an inferiority complex. An immigrant from Italy might be poor and barely literate, and in the words of the WASP upper classes of the East Coast, a papist, but he was also from the country that had produced the Verdi operas that those same wasp bourgeoisie were attending and performing in order to secure their own class status via via the European aristocracy and bourgeoisie. There's a note in my family genealogy that on my father's side, um, their immigrant family around the same time, which had fled a village in Lithuania after Tsarist pogroms burned down the family mill along with 11 of the 13 children, um, that the family bought a giant square piano with mother of pearl keys as their first investment in their new American life. Lee's father played the French horn and worked as a factory worker. His mother had been a concert pianist. They grew up in a streetcar suburb, a place where plain talk and riches brought in from farming land, uh, expropriated from its native inhabitants, could flatten class divisions and distinctions. This kind of suburb was the kind of uh, spiritual foundation of what we now consider the American dream. There was also, at the time of his birth, a strong strain of Wisconsin populist progressivism that helped to win a lot of the material gains that made this kind of working and middle-class suburban utopia possible. 
Five years after Liberace's birth in 1924, the progressive socialist Senator Robert La Follette, who had been the governor of Wisconsin, carried that state along with 16% of the vote on a united socialist and populist, pro-labor, anti-monopoly, and pro-racial integration platform. But during Liberace's lifetime, the political right would use the cultural signifiers of the new left, precisely the cultural signifiers Liberace spent his career resisting, signifiers like rock and roll music, like women demanding equality outside the home, like black parents demanding a fair education for their children, and of course those strange homosexuals congregating in the coastal cities, ready to steal your child, to turn those middle American people away from the political balance of forces that had made this kind of broad-based prosperity possible. Liberace would become both an emblem of those changes and through his silence and cultural conservatism an emblems of resistance to them. While his father wanted to give the children a musical education, his mother at first withheld this, citing financial difficulty. His father wanted to play and teach music more than he wanted to work, which made him a bad financial provider. His mother, therefore, had to take on a lot of those roles. His father would fill in the gaps in his musical employment with itinerant and manual labor, which he hated, and he vowed his children would never have to reduce themselves to. He taught them furiously, demanding high standards in practice and performance. Liberace's mother, to quote his biographer, numbered neither grace, tolerance, nor affection among her virtues. Raised by poor Polish immigrants, she resisted change her entire life. She used a coal stove and an icebox well into the 1950s, and she always refused to eat frozen food. She bitterly complained about her husband and children frittering away their time playing music while she was working, and this led to both verbal and physical fights between his parents. Despite the family being very poor, they had a fancy record player on which they listened to the great opera and concert artists of their day. The children were woken up at four o'clock in the morning and forced to practice for hours before they went to school. Lee's prodigious talent. Yes. I mean, but this is the story of so many people who succeed in classical music. I mean, the, the, the great child prodigies um, are all basically forced to practice by their parents from the time they're four years old. That's how you get a child prodigy is through sort of ritualized abuse. Like ballet. Yes. It was very, very similar. Um, Very, very similar. Uh, And in fact, there's one, Example from now that's publicly known, but the cellist Yo-Yo Ma doesn't speak to his father, has no relationship with his father, um, which is interesting. So Liberace's talent uh, was evident from the early years. And by the age of seven, he was capable of memorizing difficult pieces. One time his sister was learning music, uh, very sort of fast and complicated music from uh, Mendelssohn's uh, score to Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, Night's Dream, and she'd been sort of struggling over it, um, and he hadn't spent any time learning it. He just heard her playing it, and he sort of sat down and said, "Oh, it goes like this," and all perfectly. Um, the best little boy. So in the annoying. World. Yeah, Incredible so kid. annoying. And so he studied uh, the technique and the mystique of the uh, Polish pianist Ignaz Paderewski, who is also a leading figure in the. Polish nationalist movements. It was for a brief time the prime minister of Poland. Paderewski combined an enormous talent with a kind of showmanship um, inherited from the great 19th century romantic pianists like Liszt. This was the beginning of women throwing their garments on stage at performers uh, and sort of losing, you know, before there were teeny boppers screaming and throwing their room keys at Elvis, there were proper society ladies screaming and throwing their handkerchiefs at Liszt and then later Paderewski. 
And so at the age of eight, he gets to meet the great man uh, backstage after a concert at the Pabst Theater in Milwaukee. He later said, quote, I was intoxicated by the joy I got from the great virtuoso's playing. My dreams were filled with fantasies of following his footsteps. Inspired and fired with ambition, I began to practice with a fervor that made my previous interest in the piano look like neglect. And Paderewski would later become a mentor and a family friend. The young Lee, uh, like so many gay boys who are um, sensitive and prefer the piano to sports, had a, a little bit of a speech impediment. At one point, he was taken by his angry father to a physician who clipped the skin underneath his tongue in order to reduce his lisp. And uh, for a time, he took speech lessons with a priest at Marquette University who taught him to speak slowly and clearly in the nasal Wisconsin accent that would become one of his trademarks. As I mentioned, he disliked sports and preferred playing the piano and helping his mother in the kitchen, uh, which led to taunts from the neighborhood boys. No comment. He would later report to friends uh, that he had crushes on male teachers by the age of 10, and he was tormented by both the fear of being that way and the combination of consolation and damnation he received from his experience in the Catholic Church and from the spectacles of Catholic Mass. In Liberace's biography, uh, Pyron, his biographer, quotes uh, from John Recce uh, this about being a young gay Catholic boy, which I think is a very good segment. Quote, you had to tell your trespasses to a faceless whispering voice that kept insisting, how many times did you commit that sin? How many times? Locked in guilt even when you had no cause to feel guilty. After confession and fasting came the purification. Communion, you knelt to receive the wafer that was the precious body of Christ. It was all over so quickly, especially since there had been so much agony in confession and fasting. And you knew that soon, too soon, you'd be huddled kneeling guiltily in the darkness again before that mysterious little screen window of the confessional and addressing the faceless presence. Bless me, Father, Father, for I have sinned. You couldn't really build a machine to create those, uh, to create those sensations, like more accurately to produce those like lifelong neuroses and anxieties around sexual behavior than, yeah, exactly this, this dark voice. And we'll see where this all where this all leads uh, Liberace's development, but more news to come. So the depression was financially very difficult on the Liberace family, which of course only increases the pressure on children. On the children, uh, at this point, he went to a teacher named Florence Kelly, who uh, began sending him out to earn some extra money by playing some numbers on the radio, where she was a house pianist. At this time, radio networks would all have sort of house musicians. Um, who would play for the, the local um, area covered by the broadcast station. One time when he was 15 years old, he was forced to play a very difficult piece by Franz Liszt, Forest Murmurs, uh, on the radio, and he made a few mistakes, and he remembered this, quote, When the program was over, I walked out of the studio into a sort of lounge area where other performers waited between rehearsals or to get into a studio to do a show. Mrs. Kelly was waiting for me with fire in her eyes. She was so angry, she grabbed my music from my hands and flung it in my face sheet by sheet. She reminded me that she told me that I wasn't prepared to play that song, and I'd proved it to the whole world. She really let me have it, and I was more embarrassed than I'd normally be because the musicians sitting around in the lounge were friends of my father's. They taunted me with lines like, shame, shame, Wally didn't do his lesson. 
When I got home, the news had already reached my father, and of course, perfectionist that he was, he agreed totally with Mrs. Kelly. So he called the station and told them that he'd prefer it if his little boy didn't appear on the air anymore until he was more thoroughly prepared for it. So at the age of 17, Lee gave his first public recital in Milwaukee, playing a very traditional public recital program of Beethoven, Liszt, and Chopin, and received excellent reviews. He began playing concerti with the Milwaukee Symphony, played recitals in Chicago, and finally was invited to play solo with the Chicago Symphony, which is a very big deal. And he won praise for his sensitivity and for his virtuosity as a player. And so this, in some sense, uh, should have been it. Here he was, the working class child of immigrants, ascending to a heralded classical music career and soloing with one of the United States' most established orchestras. But Lee had always been just as interested in popular music, which his father hated. Even much later, when his son was becoming a very wealthy celebrity by performing popular music, he would mutter darkly to friends about, quote, Walter playing that BS. Earlier, it was even worse. In the 20s, 1920s, uh, their neighbors had recommended capitalizing on the boy's genius. You should let him work in some kind of child prodigy act and tour the country with it. He'd make big money, one visitor insisted. Sam's response never varied. Quote, Wally's going to study music and finish his schooling in the proper manner. I won't let him prostitute his talent. Well, Wally started prostituting his own talent in his teenage years, first to earn pocket money and then to bring money in for the family. And in fact, sometimes he prostituted his talent around some prostitutes, as we'll hear. Uh, but he I was going to say, is that a euphemism? Or you... Well, no, not entirely. Uh, so he was uh, hired to play for dancing classes, for clubs, for weddings. Uh, he started playing jazz piano. And for a while, he adopted the stage name Walter Buster Keys. He also, at this time, showed a budding interest in draftsmanship, design, painting, and fashion. No comment. He reminds me a little bit of another child of Polish working-class immigrants, Andy Warhol, no? in this life story. Actually, not dissimilar at all. And I think it would be really interesting to talk more about that in the conclusion, because when you hear the whole story, you'll really see a lot of the fixations, I think, are very similar. And I think they both made similar observations about um, popular culture that led them to both profit in similar ways. Uh, and as I mentioned, the prostituting his talent is not entirely just a metaphor. Um, he uh, would sometimes play in movie theaters accompanying pornographic films. Sometimes he would provide music for live strippers. Uh, he said once in the way that only somebody who is truly inspired by the sight of the female body can say that, quote, I loved to punctuate their movements with special chords and riffs as I accompanied their weird gyrations, unquote. Uh, and when he was 16, uh, he was in the middle of a strip joint full of naked women and cheering men when the police broke in and he was arrested and delivered home to his parents who became furious and attempted to restrict him to performing at more genteel locations. Um, so he did all of this during the Depression era uh, as this kind of classical career was building. And then uh, in 1942 and 1943, uh, began to realize that there was potentially more money in this, and this is maybe where his heart was. And so he moved away from straight classical performance and reinvented his act to what he called pop with a bit of classics or classical music with the boring parts left out. By the late 1940s, he was performing in nightclubs in major cities around the United States. He had contracts with two major chains of hotels, Statler and Radisson. 
um, and would often whimsically mix uh, serious music with much lighter music. So he'd start playing a Chopin etude and then turn it into Home on the Range. He would do things like play the piano uh, in duet with a recording of himself on a record player on stage. Uh, and he also added a huge amount of interaction with the audience. And so he's sort of turning himself from a pianist into a kind of club performer uh, where it's not showmanship playing the piano, but an entire act. Yeah. In 1943, he was cast in two soundies, which were uh, 1940s precursors to music videos. Um, and in 1944 made his first appearances in Las Vegas, which became his principal venue. And uh, he began appearing at some of the best clubs in Vegas. Um, and at this time, making money takes on uh, more importance for him because his father um, walks away from his marriage and leaves his mother for his mistress, a human woman with the actual real life name of Zona Gale Smertz. Z Zona Gale Smertz. Z-O-N-A-Z-O-N-A, Zona, Gale, G-A-L-E, Smurts, S-M-R-Z. Wow, what a, yeah, what a name. Zona Smurts, that's like the, you know, you, you read something that like, well, you know, before Judy Garland was named Judy Garland, her birth name was Zona Smurts. <laughs> On that note, I always assumed Liberace was a stage name. Liberace is a pretty fantastic surname for a performer. His actual name was Walter Liberace. Um, and he just took his last name as the stage name, I think, because it was so good. But as I mentioned, his, his uh, mother called him Wally uh, and his friends called him <laughs> Lee. And so at this time, uh, Liberace continued to kind of work to refine his act he made a candelabra on the piano. His trademark uh, began to uh, use Liberace as his stage name and drop the Walter. Um, wear white tie and tails for better visibility um, and uh, begin to uh, expand his repertoire of pianos to accompany his repertoire of costumes. Uh, he bought a oversized Luthner grand piano and covered it in gold leaf and then hyped it up in his own press kit as a priceless piano. He would often encrust his pianos with rhinestones and mirrors. Uh, he moved to North Hollywood in 1947 and would perform at local clubs like Ciro's and the Mocambo, and these were places where your Hollywood actors and actresses, your Rosalind Russell, your Clark Gable, your Judy Garland, your Gloria Swanson were hanging out. Um, was this aesthetic, like, <clears throat> I, I always see, assume his aesthetic, it seems so unique, so idiosyncratic to him. Where, where was he getting this sort of like aesthetic influence as a performer, you know, like, he's kind of like a Freddie Mercury figure that he's like, it seems like he's inventing it. Or is he sort of like taking stuff? I don't know. Is this like a sort of like, what's the name? Busby Berkeley style performance that yeah. he's like expanding on and like it's a I very mean, weird aesthetic what he's doing and i think it's really interesting is so there's the the tradition and this is my reading of it um there's a kind of 1940s and 50s american filmed musical excess and it goes back to the 30s too with, with berkeley uh, which is of course itself based based on stage performance but which reads on screen it's just smaller when you put it there. So you have to make this giant set, whatever. And, 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 and if you're actually in stage performance, it's all, it's all slightly more toned down. And what he then does is sort of take that and then bring it back to the stage and then importantly put it on a male yeah. body. 
right? So you have the kind of, you know, 16 foot train feathered evening gown, uh, where if that appeared on Ann Taylor, uh, no, Ann Taylor, if that appeared on Ann Miller, uh, who then sort of ripped off the skirt and did a tap dance number across a soundstage, you know, yeah. twice of it, he then turns it into a coat and then wears it on stage and he's physically there. Um, and so that's kind of where, where it starts to come from. Yeah, and, yeah um, you're right, actually. And the same, the, the same with the lights and the glitter and the, and the makeup and stuff, it's very much like a, a, an on-screen Hollywood performance. But then, like you say, it's like transferred onto this smaller scale, but then it pops even more, you know, in this, 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 this ridiculous Hollywood version of bourgeois Europe with the candelabra and the gold and stuff. But it, yeah. Mm-hmm. But very tacky, you know. You could, if you if you slam the door, the entire set wobbles. Sort of environment. And we'll start talking about the kinds of environments that he lives in uh, once he starts making real money later. Um, and he's become very successful by the early nineteen fifties. Um, his nineteen fifty four performance at Madison Square, Madison Square Garden earns him. At that time, $138,000. Today, that's equivalent to $1,300,000 for a one-night performance. Um, He was also, interestingly enough, uh, mentioned, or at least thought of enough as a sex symbol at the time, that he could show up uh, named as such in the lyrics of the Cordette's 1954 number one hit, Mr. Sandman. He takes all sorts. Was, at this time... Uh, making over a million dollars a year in uh, money that day, those days money uh, from public appearances and millions more from television was covered by the major magazines and became kind of a superstar at this time. He once stated, I don't give concerts, I put on a show. And unlike a classical piano recital, which ends with applause and the pianist going off stage and everyone contemplating, Liberace shows would end with the public being invited on stage to touch his clothes touch his piano, touch his jewelry, touch his stands, touch all of the skin, darling. Yeah. You're just an overgrown orangutan. Exactly. In 1952, he began filming his first television series, The Liberace Show, and uh, him and his producer, uh, Duke Goldstone. How do you like them egg rolls, Mr. Goldstone? Mounted- was, he, was, was he christened Duke egg Goldstone? <laughs> Goldstone was... The- was he introduced as a baby in the cut? His only child, Duke. <laughs> I believe. I believe. I believe he was christened Duke Goldstone. <laughs> wow. So Lee and Duke Goldstone um, made the decision, which later proved to be smart, to not find a network, but instead to produce the show independently and allow it to be syndicated by different broadcast affiliates in different markets. Um, which meant that he earned eighty percent of the profits. Uh, from the show. Uh, therefore, his first two years of television earnings gave him $7 million um, in income. He learned early on to add what he would even refer to as schmaltz to his television show uh, and to cater to the taste of his mass audience. He would joke and chat directly to the camera, use dramatic lighting, costume changes, exaggerated hand movements, etc. Um, and what people often in this early age of television would call ritualized domesticity. Uh, where his brother is the guest violinist. His mother was often sitting in the front row of the audience. Um, He would begin each show by mixing these sort of chat segments with different production numbers. He signed off every broadcast singing, I'll Be Seeing You, which was his theme songs. 
And uh, at any given time, uh, 30 million Americans were watching this show. And uh, because it was syndicated, it, uh, they would just send the tapes over to the UK where it was shown on British commercial television in the 1950s, uh, which gave him a dedicated following uh, on Sunday afternoons there in the UK. Uh, and again, according to his biographer, Liberace uh, was Elton John reports, the first gay person he ever saw. And uh, I think we get some insight into where Elton John maybe comes from with that kind of visual style. Yeah, that makes sense. But at this time, the critics were harsh in their assessments. A representative critic critique uh, from the New York Times in 1954 had this to say, quote, what kind of a pianist is Liberace? Don't ask a square with Horowitz and Rubinstein on the brain. He'll say that Liberace is not more than a pot parlor pianist that you'd wish was kept in someone else's parlor. The critic might point out a lot of flaws, slackness of rhythm, wrong tempos, distorted phrasing, an excess of prettification and sentimentality, a failure to stick to what the composer has written. So what? Does Liberace claim to be a Horowitz or a Rubinstein? The square would reply, then he could be a solid jazz player or an honest pop stylist, and he isn't either. His beat doesn't send you. His ideas are not inventive. And he won't even let a sentimental piece speak for itself. He has to make it so maudlin it sticks in your craw. The characters who envy Liberace's well-built six-foot frame and his appeal to the women cry out that his success depends on the loneliness of old girls and the slushiness of young one. But Liberace can prove that there are plenty of men in his audiences. Now, if at this time the American upper middle classes were aspiring to European status and saw the performance and consumption of classical music as central to that aspiration, Liberace provided a different kind of aspiration tailored to the kinds of people he had grown up with. He knew their relationship to classical music, that they might like the melodies but think the pieces were too long, that they might appreciate the beauty and the class but think the social atmosphere of a concert hall was too stuffy and exclusive. A distinctly American feeling of nostalgia permeated his performances. That same Times review mentions him playing a song for an old woman in Vermont, he said, who had written him about how she lived a simple country life, just how people had always lived, except that she had gotten electricity so she'd get a television so she could watch his show. In a nuclear world that was rapidly changing, there was always Liberace to provide a sanitized taste of class and refinement tailored to white middle-class tastes. To his critics, he said at one Hollywood Bowl concert, he had one song to dedicate, and then sat down and played a song called, I Don't Care As Long As They Care For Me. It was in the strip joints in Milwaukee as a teenager that Lee seems to have discovered both straight and gay sex. In his public memoirs, he remembered being taken advantage of by a blues singer. Um, in conversations with his later lover, Scott Thorson, he would say this, quote, at a saloon engagement once, I saw men coming in together who weren't the usual after work blue collar crowd. Knowing I wasn't alone, seeing that the other men like me were capable of enjoying their lives helped to relieve my sense of isolation. I could hardly miss the guy, Lee told Thorson, reminiscing about his first lover. He was the size of a door, the most intimidating man I'd ever seen. Every time I looked out in the audience, there he was, smiling at me. From then on, he showed up wherever I worked. He'd buy me drinks during our break and tell me how much he liked listening to my music. One night, he asked me to drive, he asked to drive me home. That's the night I lost my virginity. He was a football hero for the Green Bay Packers. Well, yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The Green Bay Packers uh, are one of the many 
names in American football that just sound like the porn <laughs> version of themselves. Um, what do they call them? Open receiver for the Green Bay Packers? Uh, you, could, you could be either a, a wide, wide receiver, a wide, a wide receiver, receiver, a wide receiver <laughs> or a tight end for the Green Bay Packers. Um, <laughs> and so as Liberace is becoming much more popular, neither his um, way of speaking nor his eccentric dress style passed the notice of some of those mean old critics many of whom began to write unkindly things about the Spangled Performer. An infamous 1955 column in the Daily Mirror by its columnist wrote under the single name Cassandra read in full as follows. <clears throat> I have to report that Mr. Liberace, like Windstarke Fünf, is about the most that man can take, but he is not a drink. He is yearning wind strength five. He is the summit of sex, masculine, feminine, and neuter, everything that he, she, and it can ever want. I have spoken to sad but kindly men who have met every celebrity arriving from the United States for the past 30 years. They all say that this deadly, winking, sniggering, snuggling, chromium-plated, scent-impregnated, luminous, quivering, giggling, fruit-flavored, mincing, ice-covered heap of mother love has had the biggest reception and impact on London since Charlie Chaplin arrived at the same station, Waterloo on September 12th, 1921. This appalling man, and I use the word appalling in no other than its true sense of terrifying, has hit this country in a way that is as violent as Churchill receiving the cheers on VE Day. He reeks with emetic language that can only make grown men long for a quiet corner, an aspidistra, a handkerchief, and the old hefo. Without doubt, he is the biggest sentimental vomit of all time. Slobbering over his mother, winking at his brother, and counting the cash at every second, this superb piece of calculating candy floss has an answer for every situation. No one since Amy Semple McPherson has purveyed a bigger, richer, and more varied slag heap of lilac-covered hokum. No one anywhere ever made so much money out of high-speed piano playing with the ghost of Chopin gibbering at every note. There must be something wrong with us that our teenagers longing for sex and our middle-aged matrons fed up with sex alike should fall for such a sugary mountain of jingling claptrap wrapped up in such a preposterous clown. <laughs> what a read. What was it about a, a lilac-covered mountain? No, an ice-covered mountain of mother love and a lilac... A deadly, winking, sniggering, snuggling, chromium-plated, scent-impregnated, luminous, quivering, giggling, fruit-flavored, mincing, ice-covered heap of mother love. <laughs> wow talking about beat around the bush though is an insult it was absolutely that now americans had been voicing their curiosity about liberace's sexuality for some time before this article uh, two years before that harangue appeared in print in 1954 um american media in scandal sheets were describing him as a sissy a mama's boy and even a homosexual there was an article once called Mad About the Boy, which made no reference to the Daily Mirror. Um, but uh, for this, at this moment, uh, against that Daily Mirror article, for whatever reason, uh, maybe because of the United Kingdom's comparatively uh, much stronger libel laws, he decided to sue for libel. As I mentioned I can't, before... I can't blame him. I mean, yeah, that's oh, fair yeah. enough. Like... At, at, the main at, the, at the same time, uh, before then, he had been written about in a lot of these Hollywood scandal sheets, which were edited by... Uh, men like Robert Harrison, uh, gay men who worked within the confines of a Hollywood defined by the Lavender Scare and the Red Scare, 
who worked to keep gay men in fear. I actually think after doing the research for this episode that some of these gays, like Robert Harrison, would be maybe good subjects of future episodes. Um, the context, again, of the Lavender Scare is the systematic removal of gay men from, from federal employment, um, and which also sent a chilling effect through a lot of different kind of culture industries. Um, reporting on the libel, he said, quote, uh, it has cost me many years of my professional career by implying that I am a homosexual. It has caused untold agonies and embarrassment, and it has made me the subject of ridicule. He later remembered, in 1956, people were destroyed by that accusation. It hurt me. People stayed away from my shows in droves. I went to the top, from the top to the bottom in a very short time, and I had to fight for my life. So going back to the libel case itself, uh, he began his legal case by sending the newspaper a telegram that said, what you said hurt me very much. I cried all the way to the bank. He then sued for libel. <laughs> he testified in a London court that he was not a homosexual and that he had never taken part in homosexual acts. He was represented in court by the esteemed barrister Gilbert Bafus, um, awesome. and they won the suit based on the use of the expression fruit-flavored. The case hinged on whether the columnist knew that fruit was American slang for homosexuality. Um, and after a three-week they, they got him for, fr- for fruit-flavored after what was the, the lilac? Flavored, lilac-covered mincing. Yeah, they got him for fruit-flavored. Yeah. And the jury ruled in Liberace's favor and awarded him $22,000 in damages, which is approximately $200,000 today. Um, That's some risky business. That's a risky business, if you bear in mind, for example, Oscar Wilde. I mean, that's how he he sued um, Bosey's father, of course, famously for for libel. And then when he he managed to prove, of course, that it was true, um, that he was a sodomite, then then that's when he then faced further prosecution for for, um, being a sodomite. yeah, being a sodomite. And, and uh, presumably this is pre-1967, so, I mean, unlikely that an American citizen would get charged in that way, but still, um, if, if, if it was proven a court of law, it would have completely destroyed his career, no? It's, yes, it would have. At the same time, the implication unchallenged might also have, and I think this may be one of the reasons why he sued for libel in the UK and not in the US, uh, because it would have been comparatively much more difficult for a newspaper columnist, even a fairly well-resourced newspaper columnist, to do whatever private investigative work would have been necessary to establish the truth of whatever the allegations were um, if all of the sex acts had happened in Los Angeles and not in, and not in I mean, he, he wasn't suing in Los Angeles County Court where it would be much easier maybe for the, for the person he was suing to bring someone in. Although then a couple of years later, he actually did, as we'll, as we'll get to uh, in a second. Um, because of course... This lawsuit, so he, he sues immediately. It takes three years for the, for the suit to work its way out. Uh, the existence of this lawsuit, um, of course, doesn't stop other scandal sheets from making this claim. And so in 1957, um, July of 1957, the Hollywood scandal sheet Confidential runs a cover with the headline, Why Liberace's theme song should be Mad About the Boy. Um, this is a time when a lot of gay Hollywood stars like Rock Hudson kept their uh, extremely uh, active and frankly very fun sounding sex lives out of the tabloids by restricting those sex lives to members of tightly knit social circles. You know, in the theory that if you go down, we all go down. Uh, but Lee refused to do this, apparently hitting on men whenever he met them. So in that July issue, that article uh, brimmed with photographs and telling details, uh, its author wrote the following. 
In one of the zaniest plots in theatrical history, this comedy of errors rang up the curtain in Hackrett, Ohio, played a crazy act two in Los Angeles, and closed in Dallas, Texas, with the wildest finale since Hell's a Poppin'. Here was the story. A young New York publicity agent was reported to have flown in from Manhattan to Akron to promote a 4th of July celebration featuring the famous Liberace. He organized a welcoming ceremony at the airport and then accompanied the performer back to his hotel suite. According to the story, when he declared, quote, whatever you want, I'm your boy, it set the entertainer off, who took it as an invitation and made physical moves on the man. Quote, once during the scuffle, the press agent let out a yelp of pain and no wonder. For luscious Libby, it was strictly no holds barred. Finally, with a combination of wrist lock and flying mare, the publicity man wrenched loose from his host's embrace and fled the suite, leaving Liberace sprawled on the floor. And it also it described uh, round two and round three of these physical attacks with the publicist who needed various legal releases um, for uh, photographs that were taken of the pianist. The reporter described the Dallas match as a replay of the Akron suite, quote, the floor show reached its climax when Dimples, by sheer weight, pinned his victim to the mat and mewed in his face, gee, you're cute when you're mad. So Liberace sued about this article as well, and actually his successful suit was part of a trend that shut down these gossip scandal sheets for good, or if not for good, then at least until their sort of reemergence in the 1990s and 2000s. But his career through all of this continued apace until he suffered a health crisis uh, on November 22nd, 1963, uh, when he nearly died from kidney failure, uh, reportedly from accidentally inhaling excessive amounts of dry cleaning fumes from his newly cleaned costumes in a small Pittsburgh dressing room. He later said that what saved him from further injury was being woken up by his entourage to the news that John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. In other words, they came to let him know that JFK was shot and that's why he got out of the dressing room. He was told by doctors that his condition would be fatal uh, and he began to spend his entire fortune by buying extravagant gifts of furs, jewelry, and houses for friends. And this uh, would continue throughout the rest of his life. Uh, but then after a month, he mysteriously recovered to perfect health. And this event, uh, Thorson would later remember, uh, seemed to free him. It seemed to Liberace, he said that he had received permission from God in order to do what he wanted that he had been saved from death and he could therefore pursue his life and his pleasures. So he continued to uh, establish himself in Las Vegas and uh, swell his act with spectacle. He declared himself a one-man Disneyland and filled his costumes with uh, ostrich feathers, mink, capes, and rings. Uh, he would be chauffeured on stage in Rolls Royces or flown in on a wire like Peter Pan. He began to involve chorus girls, cars, and animals, sometimes at the same time, um, and feature other acts, uh, including he gave against the vociferous opposition of the Hilton family, who thought she was too Jewish-looking to succeed, uh, a crucial first career break to a little girl from Brooklyn named Barbara Streisand. Liberace's energy and commercial ambitions took him in many directions. He started an antique store, and he published a cookbook uh, which included the recipes Liberace lasagna and Liberace sticky buns. In the book... A lot of Scott Thorson sticky buns. <laughs> Everybody's sticky buns. Um, the, the book featured recipes themed across the seven dining rooms of his Hollywood home. Uh, at this point, he was earning $300,000 a week, 
he was a conservative in his politics and his faith. He believed in capitalism and was fascinated with royalty ceremony and luxury. Uh, he loved uh, acting starstruck with the famous people that he met, uh, but to his fans, he was a hardworking Midwesterner who had enjoyed his success and who invited them to enjoy it with him. Um, asked again by Johnny Carson, uh, the Tonight Show host, about the critics, Liberace said in the 1970s, quote, I don't cry all the way to the bank anymore. Now I bought it. At this point, his homes included... One, a piano-themed and shaped home in the valley where he had lived with his mother between 1953 and 1958. Two, a Malibu condo featuring a piano-shaped bar, piano-shaped couch, a black baby grand, and several candelabras. Three, a Hollywood penthouse featuring a mirrored wall in the bedroom, a zebra pattern carpet, and a rooftop pool. Four, a 28-room Hollywood Hills mansion, uh, which the Los Angeles Mirror described as, quote, combination Versailles Palace and Vic Tanny Gym. Five, a 1930 Spanish colonial nicknamed The Cloisters, which was his favorite home and where he saw out his last days. That was in Palm Springs, California. And finally, a 15,000-square-foot Vegas mansion he built in the 1960s featuring a $50,000 custom-made sunken marble tub and a painting of Liberace on the ceiling. And uh, as I believe Jane Austen wrote, it is a truth universally acknowledged that an old queen in a 15,000 square foot mansion full of painting himself with only his mother for company will eventually become lonely. And this is where in 1977, he met the left-handed chauffeur mentioned in my introduction, Scott Thorson. This is the part of the story that will be familiar to people who know the TV film Behind the Candelabra based on the book, a memoir by Thorson of the same name. So Thorson was born in La Crosse, Wisconsin, nearly, and came from a broken home. He had a mother who had severe mental illness. He was 18 when the two met in 1977. Lee was almost 60. Scott had traveled to Las Vegas from San Francisco, where he had moved to escape his family, and went by chance to see the Liberace show, thinking the performer would be old and over the hill. And instead, he was captivated. He wrote in the book, quote, I was spellbound. It was all campy and great fun. He then described... Uh, something that occurred midway through the act. He wrote, quote, midway through the act, Lee introduced his protege, a man I will call Jerry. The two men came out dressed in identical silver outfits wearing the same jewelry. Their hair had been teased into two identical high pompadours and sprinkled with sequins. To me, they looked like a matched pair of queens. I looked around the audience wondering what all these middle-class, middle-aged women were thinking. Did they assume what I did? <laughs> So Liberace spotted him and his friend and invited them over the next day. And I'm now going to quote Scott Thorson describing the scene of arriving at Liberace's Las Vegas mansion. Quote, the huge entry hall, much bigger than even the living room in my current home, was guaranteed to make a first-time visitor gasp. Marble floors, mirrored walls, a curved stairway with clear lucite banisters that looked as if it had been suspended in midair, and gushing pink fountains vied for the viewer's attention. Antique furniture, crystal, priceless china, objet d'art, fresh flowers, paintings crowded every available surface. Lee strolled out with three dogs at his heels and one in his arms. He'd been wearing heavy stage makeup the night before. Now he was casually dressed in a short terry cloth robe, but still wearing cosmetics. A light foundation failed to conceal the shadows under his eyes. A mirrored concert grand had a lucite top, a lucite music stand, and lucite piano bench. A cheap pillow looking out of place in the piano bench captured my attention. 
Overstuffed sofas covered in tufted raw silk flanked a marble-mantled fireplace. Crystal chandeliers, ornate gilded furniture, urns on pedestals, priceless porcelain cluttered the room. Crocheted pillows were a strange contrast to the decorator sofas. Inexpensive paintings clashed with walls covered by French silk moiré. Blown glass souvenirs cheapened priceless commodes. Years later, I would know that the theme was palatial kitsch. I'll be damned, I thought. Liberace not only looks like a queen, he lives like one. So after serving Scott lunch, Liberace took him for a full tour of the home, uh, ending, of course, in the most important room, the bedroom. Quote, The room, carpeted in the deepest pale blue plush, was larger than most homes. You could have held a football scrimmage inside it. An enormous canopied bed covered with an ermine spread with a large stuffed bear propped against the headboard dominated one wall. How'd you like to live like this, Scott? Lee asked. Not bad, huh? Three gilt-framed portraits of Lee, one an almost life-size photograph, hung on one wall. Two cream-colored brocade sofas, an antique desk and chair, and I just have to go through because I can just keep listing tacky furniture all day, etc., 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 the mo room's most notable feature was a facsimile of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel painted on the ceiling. Looking up, I saw that Lee's own face beamed down at us from amid the cherubim and seraphim. So that's Liberace's house. And so uh, Liberace, at the end of this first meeting, explained that he was having some severe problems with uh, Jerry, who, as I mentioned, was his live-in protege. Um, and uh, burst out crying and asked God for help and offered Scott a job as a private secretary and chauffeur, uh, which Scott accepted as a rate of $300 a week. Lee then grabbed Scott and initiated their first sexual encounter. Um, Did you go into details? No. Scott is very squeamish about their sex life, uh, which is interesting. He, he identifies himself as gay at the beginning of the book, uh, but he's very squeamish about their sex life, and it seems about gay sex in general. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit, uh, a little bit later in the, in the book. Um, so at this point, Scott has uh, Jerry, his live-in protege, um, living there with him. He had found Jerry playing in a piano bar. Uh, Jerry in New York... Jerry drove, drove a truck to support his wife and children, uh, and Lee basically promised him the world if he would come to Vegas and be in his show. Um, poor Mrs. Jerry uh, came out to Vegas to try to get her husband back and uh, seems to have been unsuccessful, but Lee claimed that Jerry was being impossible, but still for a while attempted to keep Jerry living there in the house with Scott uh, before finally, at Scott's request, evicting uh, Jerry. Uh, three people were a few two people uh, in that relationship, at least for Scott. And Scott seems to have been very intent on wanting to have a kind of monogamous uh, relationship with, with Lee. Um, so he was a furious extrovert on stage, but off stage um, seemed to be um, very, very private, introverted. Uh, Scott writes that his need for privacy, quote, bordered on paranoia. Um, Christmas, Scott wrote, was the sole exception to Lee's demand for total privacy. He would apparently begin planning and talking about the holiday at the end of October. Um, and he would, to quote Scott, reward or punish each individual by the size of the gifts he gave to each. For example, in November of their first year together, 
uh, Lee ordered Scott to go pick up a check for $25,000 from his business manager um, that Scott was then in, to use to decorate their house. And the business manager refused, assuming that Scott was trying to steal Lee's money. And Lee then called up the business manager and, and gave her what for. And, and there came the there came the check and there went the decorations. Lee actually moved from one of his Hollywood houses to the other so that Scott could have free reign to decorate so that Lee could then come back and be delighted by what Scott had done. Too much of a good thing, Lee would always say, is wonderful. They didn't have many friends at the time, but the friends that they had read like a laundry list of uh, the kind of women that parents say, oh, but he loves women, how could he possibly be gay? Their dinner guests included Charo, Debbie Reynolds, Shirley MacLaine, Loretta Lynn, and Lena Horne. Wow. That's quite a dinner party, yeah. <laughs> Scott would also eventually become very close friends with Michael Jackson. Their friendship, interestingly enough, ended after uh, the girlfriend of Lord Montague in about 1979 insinuated that Scott and Michael were having sex with each other after Lee, Scott, and Michael and Janet Jackson, who were all traveling together, were invited to a dinner at Lord Montague's London mansion. And it was around this time that Lee began his program of extensive plastic surgery. Both he and Scott in the first years of their relationship had gained a lot of weight and Lee obsessed, especially when seeing himself aging on television with keeping fit and trim. He went to a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon with the name of Jack Startz, S-T-A-R-T-Z, um, who uh, flew out to Los Angeles, or sorry, rather, flew out to Las Vegas uh, and met them. Scott reports of Startz, quote, his face had so many silicone implants that he looked more like a Cupid doll than a living, breathing human being, unquote. He told Starts that he wanted to get rid of his drooping eyelids, the lines on either side of his mouth, and the wrinkles. Starts checked him over and recommended a facelift with silicone implants around the mouth and a deep skin peel, assuring Lee that the results would be fabulous. Lee was thrilled by the prospect and uh, suddenly at the end of the conversation said, I want to talk to you about doing some surgery on Scott, which Scott says took him by surprise. He wrote, quote, no way at the age of 20, 20 did I need a facelift, nor had Lee ever voiced any unhappiness with my appearance other than to suggest I try to lose a little weight, a suggestion I intended to take very seriously. I'd always been Lee's blonde Adonis, his words, not mine. Starts turned and began to study my face. What would you like to do with Scott, he asked. Lee jumped up and ran into another room, returning with a large oil portrait of himself. I want you to make Scott look like this, he said, propping the painting up in front of the doctor. I was so stunned that I didn't say a word. Meanwhile, Starts looked at the painting and then back at me, studying my face and then the painting with intense concentration. It was a full face portrait of Lee in one of his favorite paintings of himself, clearly showing his cheekbones, nose, and pointy chin. If anything, it also emphasized the difference between my face and his. Yes, Starts said into the room silence. I think that I can do what you want. He'll need a nose job and I'll have to restructure his cheekbones and chin with silicone, but it's possible. The two of them were discussing me as if I wasn't in the room, but it didn't occur to me to object. And so uh, they decide to have Lee done first and then Scott. Uh, they have six months between the uh, meeting and the surgery. And uh, Scott reports that he tried to uh, raise this question with Lee. Lee replied to him, don't be a goddamn fetch. There are thousands of boys who'd love to be in your position. 
And so they go in to get the plastic surgery and Lee emerges swathed in his bandages. Um, and uh, Scott, does, uh, rather Dr. Starts decides that before Scott can have his uh, Liberace face transplant, he needs to slim down. And so puts him on what he calls the California diet. And he guarantees that the California diet will give him, make him lose 15 pounds in the four weeks preceding his surgery and says that he shouldn't worry. It's all uh, excellent research prescription medicine. Well, the combination is a combination of pharmaceutical grade cocaine, methamphetamines, and quaaludes. And uh, so the California diet <laughs> does its trick. Uh, Scott loses more. He loses actually 60 pounds um, and then uh, is about to go in for his surgery when he, he doesn't lose 60 pounds in four weeks, but he will eventually lose 60 pounds over the course of his addiction to the California diet, quote unquote. Uh, before going in for his own surgery, Scott gets a little bit spooked because he notices that uh, Lee, who has otherwise recovered very well from the surgery and, and looks sort of fit and trim and younger than ever, has one problem, which is that he can no longer quite close his eyes because the doctor removed a little bit too much skin on his eyelids. And so he reports that at night when Lee was sleeping, his eyes would slowly slide open even though he was sleeping. And that's the way that he would stay. Um, oh, so great. And so uh, after Scott starts, uh, you know, rejoins the act after the surgery, uh, women would come up to them uh, and ask if Scott was Lee's son, which apparently completely thrilled Lee. Eager to please Liberace, who wanted them both to remain slim, Scott stayed on the California diet and slowly began, became addicted to cocaine, which he eventually began to freebase. After the death of Liberace's mother in 1980, the entertainer became, according to Scott, uh, much more controlling. He was, at 22, aging out of Liberace's ideal age range, um, and uh, they had competing problems, uh, as Scott would frame it. Uh, his had to do with drugs, Scott's had to do with drugs, and Lee's had to do with sex. Scott reported that although his interest in sex was at an all-time high, his ability to achieve arousal had greatly decreased uh, despite a silicone implant he had had um, implanted in a place where such implants might be implanted. Um, their sex life was, as Scott said, diminishing in part because Lee was much too proud to discuss his virility or lack of it. This is where we get into one of the many ways in which Scott is potentially an unreliable narrator, or at least a narrator we might not be entirely sympathetic with. Uh, at one point in his book, uh, which is written in uh, after Lee's death in the early 1990s, Scott writes that promiscuity is and has always been the most serious problem facing gay men in the gay community uh, and sort of blames gay men for continuing to uh, spread AIDS with one another. Um, so Scott loses interest in having sex with Lee and becomes more eccentric under the influence of cocaine. Um, Lee ends up calling Scott a monster, which are the same words that he would use in his final fights with Jerry, who was Scott's predecessor. Um, Scott writes, I've created a Jekyll and Hyde, Lee would sob when our fights threatened to become physical, and he was right. My years with Lee had turned me into a spoiled, pampered, cocaine-using jerk who no longer liked himself. So the relationship finally comes to an end when uh, Lee sleeps with another man while Scott is attending his own foster mother's funeral. According to Scott, Lee then just dropped him, had him physically removed from 
uh, the condominium that they had shared and uh, shortchanged him by a huge amount of money. And this is somebody who was taken in by Lee uh, when he was 18 years old and, and Lee immediately sort of forces him to sign a document uh, giving back most of the gifts that he has received uh, and Lee forces him to sign that document, he reports, under duress of like not being able to pick up any of his things or to pick up the dogs that were, some of the dogs that were their shared pets. And so on October 14th, 1982, Scott files suit against Liberace in Los Angeles County Superior Court for palimony um, and also for extortion, extortion, sorry, and conversion of property. Um, Scott's lawyers sensing money in this whole thing, and Scott has very little money to pay a lawyer up front, immediately call the National Enquirer and offer them an exclusive deal. Uh, they get $32,000 for the story, of which half goes to the lawyer, and so the November 1982 edition of the Enquirer features a picture of Scott and Lee uh, with the banner headline, Liberace Bombshell Boyfriend Tells All. Scott says, and I did. The Inquirer article Scott wrote covered everything, um, the love affair, the plastic surgery, his new uh, relationship, the relationship with the guy that he has cheated on him with, who, who Liberace was now with. Um, and they thought that the story was going to intimidate Liberace into settling. The night the story broke, Liberace was about to do a show in the Midwest someplace and apparently cowered in his dressing room because he was afraid that his fans were going to boo and hiss. But when he walked out, he immediately received a standing ovation. Either the audience didn't believe what was in the article, or they could forgive Liberace, their great hero, anything. Liberace then retaliated by giving an exclusive interview to the competing tabloid, The Globe. The headline a week later read, Gaze out to assassinate me, says Liberace. The story began, quote, These vicious lies, it's nuts, says Starr, as Gay sues him for $113 million. This man is a former disgruntled employee. He was fired in 1982 because of use of drugs and alcohol and because he carried firearms. Um, and so this, Lee sort of continued this strategy of just fighting and fighting and fighting. Is that as the suit went on, Lee embarked on a PR ploy and he wrote a book, sold a book to Harper and Rowe that would eventually be published in 1986 called The Wonderful World, The Wonderful Private World of Liberace, uh, which of course told very little of the actual private world of Liberace. As the legal battle went on, Lee began to lose weight and rumors began to swirl that he had contracted AIDS. Thorson tested himself and was negative. At 67 in 1986, having lost more than 40 pounds from the effect of AIDS-related illness, Liberace put on a series of 21 spectacular two-hour shows at Radio City Music Hall, an effort his friends worried would be suicidal. Continuing to deny his illness and his homosexuality, Liberace insisted that he had lost the weight by going on an all-watermelon diet and that he felt better than ever. In November of 1986, Thorson and Liberace settled their suit, and the month later, Liberace invited Thorson out to his house in Palm Springs. Thorson entered the room and saw that Liberace had lost a huge amount of weight, reported that, quote, it felt as if Lee's illness was affecting his mind as well as his body. He rambled, lost his train of thought, skipped from one topic to another. But he finally looked at me and said, I'm not going to make it. Tears filled his eyes. I don't want to be remembered as an old queen who died of AIDS. On uh, January 14th of 1987, the Las Vegas Sun ran an editorial that was an appeal to, quote, one of entertainment's brightest stars to face reality with courage and determination, to lick the disease if there is a way. He has all the money in the world and he should be experimenting with treatment, not only for his own life, but for the sake of others. 
and Liberace threatened to sue the Las Vegas Sun for that editorial. Lee's last words were con contradictorily quoted as being either, quote, baby boy, I'll soon be there to feed you, and I'll soon be with you, mother. And he died on February 4th, 1987, at 11.30 a.m. In a review of the biography of Liberace that I've been referring to here, uh, the gay lib era novelist John Recce described his own encounter with the great entertainer. Quote, during a formal dinner, an attractive male, this modest reviewer, seated next to him by compliant hosts, anticipating a return favor, perhaps a gold-leafed antique, was startled by a hand wandering under the table long before dessert. And by the way, antique there is in quotes, if that quote needed to get any gayer or bitchier. But of his death, Retchie wrote, quote, angling for a share of fame at the star's expense, a small town coroner recalled the performer's body on its way to burial in order to perform a further autopsy to assert death by AIDS. The performer was thus cruelly outed as a corpse. Hated by gay liberation and AIDS activists for never coming out and for his conservatism, Liberace was beloved to the end by his fans. As Recce wrote, quote, Liberace lived as an American boy, but as a member of the conservative and political religious wing of Americans, he confirmed their values even as he transgressed them. That courageous transgression makes Liberace relevant today. Certainly, it provides an admonitory example to politically conservative homosexuals. Still, Liberace's many fans will choose to remember the remarkable performer for a reason uncompromised by other aspects of his life and death, the sole reason for his endurance. He put on one hell of a show. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to our show. We've now been downloaded more than 325,000 times, which is incredible. And we're so grateful for all of your support. And especially thanks to our Patreon listeners. Without your help, it really wouldn't be possible. It really wouldn't be. Um, and so we know you all know this, but we want to let you know that at our website, badgazepod.com, you can find a few very important things. One, you can find a link to our Patreon where you can support the show. Uh, second, you can find uh, some very beautiful t-shirts for sale. I'm wearing mine now, Hugh. Is it not lovely? Very nice. Uh, and you can also find, of course, an archive of all of our past episodes. Uh, we don't work with a media company. We don't put anything behind a paywall. We just rely on people who think that we're doing good work and who enjoy the show to uh, back that up with some support. And so we're really grateful to all of you who do. And we also understand that if you don't want to, times are tough. So you can also just completely keep listening. But uh, if you do want to support us, that's at badgazepod.com. Well, Ben, and that, uh, yeah, fantastic story. What a life. Um, and what a showman. You know, what? if you can't make it good, make it big. If you can't make yeah. it big, make it red. If you can't make it red, <laughs> make it sparkly. <laughs> Is that your motto as well? Only on um, Thursdays. Was he ever a gay icon? That's a really complicated question. Um, I actually don't think so. Um, not in the way that we would think of him now. I mean, I think he was a gay icon to the extent that he very much influenced performers like Elton John and Freddie Mercury, who then became gay icons. Um, I think because he was always so adamant that he wasn't, and because he was always identified with precisely the segment of the American um, cultural landscape that was the most opposed to uh, any kind of recognition or, or acceptance of homosexuality. Um, I think that really stopped him from being a gay icon in his time. Um, and then I think, I mean, maybe with the release of the film Behind the, Behind the Candelabra, 
younger generations are starting to even know who he was, but that entire category of like light pop classical entertainment, I think is really hard to translate for a contemporary audiences because it's so dependent as I tried to lay out on the idea that you're supposed to like classical music, but you don't quite right. Like the, the whole, yeah. the whole vision of it is that it's, it's aiming for this other thing. And in a world where you no longer have to like classical music in order to attain whatever cultural thing you want to attain, like those things have just been completely decoupled. Um, hmm. it, like the, the kind of cultural meaning of like, I can't imagine any, like, you know, who's another, a, a gay icon beloved by people that time. someone like Debbie Reynolds, you know, I can imagine like a, a, a Debbie Reynolds exotica album being put on at a party by the kind of, you know, urbane hip homosexual that I like to think I spend time around, but I can't imagine anybody ever putting on a Liberace record. I tried, I tried to listen to Liberace in order to make this. Cause I thought that if I didn't <laughs> listen to Liberace then I wouldn't be able to do this episode and there's all this stuff on Spotify and Hugh, I, could not make it through more than two minutes. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really, it's really unlistenable. I mean, it's just like mm. you think, and then you're like, Oh, he could, he's just going to play a song. And then the, like the fucking violins come in and it's like, it's, it's just, yeah. so I, it's difficult to see how he could be, how he could be recuperated actually as a musician. I think as an, as an image, I think he inspired gay icons, but I don't think he necessarily was one if that makes sense. I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking when you were talking as well um, about this memory I have as a, as a teenager, that, um, that we had these, like, my mum was ill when I was a teenager and we had um, like carers who'd come in, in uh, overnight to sort of uh, look after her. And um, there was sort of varied sort, but I was this one woman who used to come in all the time and she was, um, she was like lovely, like a Northern working class uh, uh, woman who um, was probably in her 60s, I guess. And uh, we used to watch TV together, and it was, it was like there was a show on about Live Aid, like the original Live Aid, and um, Fred, uh, Queen were performing, and she sort of made this comment to me along the lines of, um, "Oh, they were wonderful, like such great performers. I loved Queen. Uh, such a shame about those terrible lies they told about him after he died." Which to me at the time, and I was you know fifteen. I, I mean, I was openly gay. Um, I mean, it was still, it was a different time. Obviously, it was still a bit hostile. Um, but I couldn't believe that somebody could tell themselves, uh, you know, eight years after, um, eight years after Freddie Mercury died, that he was a heterosexual man. Was that what was happening there? Or was it a situation where because his, um, because he, he clearly made that division and refused to talk about his sexuality, People, people knew, but but enjoyed the performance so much that they were willing. He was like a sort of um, uh, a pet gay that they could like a pet homosexual who they could overlook it. Or did people genuinely just not know? I think it's a combination of both. I think it's a combination of both. And what, what's interesting is I don't even know how. If you're someone for whom the suggestion that someone is homosexual is a, to make that suggestion is a violent, horrible act. It's like a horrible thing to say about somebody, you think? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know really what the distinction is between knowing and not knowing. You know, it, it's, it's like, 
you know, the, the people in my extended family, you know, older family members who, you know, the, the gay cousin comes to, comes to dinner and they just always have said the word friend and they say, oh, it's, you know, Susie and her friend so often and they've never used any other word. And sometimes you want to just shake them, be like, do you know she's a lesbian? Because you don't know if they know. Like, I think it's that same yeah, yeah. kind of, I, I actually, I'm actually really not sure. Um, Cause like my grandmother, I think kind of like Liberace on my mother's side and you know, God knows if she knew, but again, I just don't think like the, 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 he wasn't someone like Noel Coward who is different in many ways, but is also kind of a gay entertainer who at least sometimes is doing club acts. It's earlier. He's playing for a urbane, witty crowd who know, and mm-hmm. he's just so funny and witty and delightful that he's their pet, or there's a kind of subversive element to it. He's on the kind of division between those things. And I think for Liberace, his, his target crowd is, is, a, is a very naive crowd. I mean, he's doing like, you know, now we bless our great troops and now I'm going to sing the song for the lady in Wisconsin who still turns her butter by hand, but she got electricity to listen to watch me play on the television. Yeah. Isn't that sweet? You know, it's just so, it, it's just impossible to know how, how his presentation would read to those people. Um, and I think it's very guess- important to me that he felt, obviously, uh, and he's a very savvy businessman, so I assume this isn't only related to his own kind of neuroses. He felt that if he that if anybody found out, he would have been done for, and maybe he would have been done for before the early 1980s, when when things had changed to not to a huge extent, but by the early 1980s, the assertion that someone is a homosexual is not necessarily as shocking is not necessarily shocking. Um, yeah, he- I think at the time it's it's so taboo. It's such a like you're saying, it's such a disgusting act and such a disgusting accusation <clears throat> that um, that it exists only in a sort of criminal underworld. Uh, you never encounter it, and your under, uh, understanding of it. I'm talking as a sort of middle class American in the Midwest, for example, as this target audience. Um, the, the and you never encounter it. That 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 those people are, are terrible people, and it's a sort of mm, no true Scotsman fallacy in that in that homosexuals are terrible people and he's not a horrible person. Therefore he cannot be a homosexual. Like it wouldn't have occurred. And I, and, and I think in, in his story, you realize just how far society has come and the influence of the gay rights movement in terms of visibility and coming out mm-hmm. that it becomes a social possibility. So it's not even whether people do or don't like it. We at least are in a position now where even the the the, the worst homophobes acknowledge that people gay people exist. And, and the nineteen they- and the nineteen eighties is very much the same. The nineteen eighties is very much the same way. I mean, obviously things are different now than they were in the nineteen eighties. But I think by the nineteen eighties, I think by the time that this becomes a kind of open secret, so that's the last five years of his life. I, I think part of the reason that that happened isn't just Thornton's lawsuit, Thornton's lawsuit. It's also that the, the change in those attitudes, um, in those specific attitudes. Right. Um, Hmm. but I think it is also worth noting how hated Liberace was by a lot of gays at that time, because he was a, an icon of the closet, uh, and B an icon of conservative culture. I mean, the, the presidents he was invited to play for were Eisenhower, Nixon, and Reagan. 
Yeah. He he strikes me as a strange mix of um, Dolly Parton and Donald Trump in terms of his like up- upbringing with this this uh, very um, don't you cruel... bring, don't you bring Dolly into this? No, but Do- Dolly has the same attitude in terms of um, refusing in a funny way refusing to rock the boat. Like th- th- she she can she can have this extremely wide popularity by by taking a. a by, yeah, by refusing to engage in, in like a certain discourse around politics and religion, which is which which allows all sorts of people to like her. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah, like if we could see it as a spectrum, perhaps with Trump at one end and Donny at the other end, but um, but he's somewhere between them, and 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 uh, and again with this strange performance of um, again to like a sort of a middle American crowd that Trump has as well, which is like Trump's. Trump's apartment in Trump Tower is um, remarkably, I mean, Liberace would look totally at home in it in terms of this like aspirational, um, mm. like sort of uh, coming from this like aggressive, like this quite harsh home of a, of a sort of work, uh, a, a, an immigrant family who are really pushing him uh, in in quite a difficult way. Um, and then he, he, he achieves this, um, this wealth, which is like that he ex- expresses in this like, very nouveau riche way, I guess. I guess I'd say, um, and that is what attracts people to him. It's like it's his, it's his, it's that very, it's that failure to actually be bourgeois, but to perform at the the wealth of it in this way that is what's so attractive to people. Absolutely, and and uh, you know, this is what you would do with this much money, right? It's, yeah, he's yeah. not looking down on anyone. Like you, you don't feel like he's a snob. Liberace is not a snob for all his failures, and in a similar way, Trump isn't oh, a no, snob. No. No, he's not. He's not a snob at all. Everyone is invited to participate in it, uh, and they have the same hairdresser, presumably. I, exactly the same kind and makeup of makeup artist, unnatural pompadour. So, um, Ben, I think this is a point in the program where we ask uh, Liberace: uh, bad gay, bad good gay, bad not gay. I'm going to make the assertion that there are two ways in which. Liberace could be thought of as a bad gay. One is the way in which he related to Scott Thorson. Um, and the other is, and seemingly other lovers, although, although Scott's the one that we have the information for. And the other is he becomes, in a way, one of the emblematic bad gays of early gay liberation, right? He becomes the the sort of vision of the sort of mincing, weeping, closeted queen uh, that coming out and the vision of the political homosexual are going to free us from. And yet, still somehow, I think, as we as we heard ourselves laughing in both mockery and recognition uh, of many of the things that we said about this fella, uh, we're still not rid of him. And we're still not rid of that understanding of homosexuality, even within ourselves. And you know, you can quote uh, the boys in the band, which they just remade, which uh, very much, I think, describes people's experiences with and fears of this kind of homosexuality. Mm. You'll always be a homosexual, Michael, always until the day you die. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree. And, and it's also worth pointing out that, of course, Freddie Mercury didn't really come out until just before he died. And um, Elton John, um, you know, kind of a bit later or almost coming out as an openly gay man. So it can't have been easy even, especially at that, at that time during the AIDS crisis. It wasn't at all. Um, yeah. It wasn't in any way. And, and uh, you don't want to, 
I want to name the anger that 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 activists felt about these men's refusal to come out without necessarily arguing that they should have. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it sounded like he had a horrible time um, in terms of public attitudes towards his sexuality. So, Ben, if um, if people want to know more about Liberace, um, what were the sort of books or sources that you were looking at? Well, there's some articles that I'll that I'll link. Um, the Ricci article. There's a couple of really good articles in Vanity Fair about the kind of Hollywood gossip culture of the of the 1950s. And I'm also going to link to the video that I describe at the beginning because I think everybody needs to see for themselves that I was not making a word of it up. Um, the two main books, it is wonderful. The two uh, main books that I used uh, to research this uh, vary from one another in quality. Uh, because one is sort of based on the other. There is from the University of Chicago Press biography, An American Boy by the historian Darden Asbury Pyron, uh, which is very academic in tone uh, and and very uh, deeply sort of thought and researched. One of the things that he relies on is Scott Thurston's book, which I also quote extensively from Behind the Candelabra, um, which, as I mentioned, I mean, this is a, this is a, uh, cash-in tell-all memoir about my life with a celebrity. It is not a great work of literary uh, anything, but it is uh, a hell of a lot of campy fun to read. And there are many more lists of uh, sparkly furniture uh, where the ones that I read came from. Yeah. And the film, of course, Behind the Candelabra, um, which I, which actually got a cinematic release in uh, in the UK, but not in the US, which is telling about the change in, in sort of attitudes even even today. That is that is interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, given the the scale of his celebrity, I think it's interesting that a biopic of him wasn't considered to be um, big enough to get a cinematic release in the U.S. Well, you've been listening to um, Bad Gays. My name's Hugh Lemmy. You can catch me at at Hugh Lemmy on Twitter, and you can catch me at Ben Writes Things. And you can also find us online. Um, uh, the podcast is at Bad Gays Pod. And you can also find us at badgazepod.com where we have um, T-shirts, a link to our Patreon, and also a full archive of all our shows. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bye.